Welcome to the Recovery Edge Cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Hey Alfredo. Hey Alfredo. Hey guys. Today we are joined by Tony and Gino. And we're actually uh, doing night watch today. And um, we haven't got any calls yet. It's been a very slow day. So, like I do everybody who visits... I made them get on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to do a little meeting here. And uh, we'll just start off with with the serenity prayer. God, God, grant grant me serenity serenity to to accept the things things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. All right. Uh, we'll go through introductions. My name's Alfredo. I'm an alcoholic. Alfredo. Hi, Alfredo. I'm Gino. I'm an alcoholic. Gino. My name's Tony. I'm an alcoholic addict. Hi, Hi Tony. Um, we're going to go over a reading then, and then we'll just kind of chat about it. So, Tony, you pick something from the big book? Yeah. I'm going to read uh, a couple paragraphs from their solution on page 21. Okay. Let's see. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption. Once he starts to drink, here's the fellow who has been, who has been puzzling you, especially in, the, in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over the house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes a day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. I think I'll stop there. Um... A Tony alcoholic. Hey, Tony. I picked that because I like the reading. It hits home a lot, um, especially, 
you know, the sedatives and being hospitalized. I've been hospitalized several times for pancreatitis over my drinking career, especially the last three years. I've been hospitalized six times. Um, and I would tell the doctors, the ER nurses, well, how much I would drink. And they would worry that I would go into such bad DTs and withdrawals, which the last few I did, but they would put me full of powerful pain medication and um, sedatives. So the withdrawals didn't really come after I was discharged. And, you know, what's the easiest, you know, sedative you can get? What's the cheapest sedative you could get is alcohol. It's right around the corner. There's several within one mile radius. It was just so easy to get after feeling so horrible. And um, I'm glad I picked this topic because recently, about, yeah, a week ago, um, I pretty much overdosed on sedatives. Um, for, from the grace of God, I didn't drink with them. For the grace of God, I didn't die. And unfortunately, um, drugs are a part of my story. But um, for some reason, I'm here today on this podcast, going into the rooms, having a great sponsor, having great company. So um, that's all I got for now. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. I'm Gino. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Gino. Yeah, that, you know, when I was, the friends I hung around with, you know, that everybody always said, you know, if you drink alone, you're an alcoholic. If you drink when you wake up, you're an alcoholic. So at first I never, I never drank alone. I was always at the bar, always surrounded by people. I was such a bar fly. And, um... The bartenders, the servers, everybody knew my drink. And I would walk into a bar and it would my drink would be set down at my table. And I never had to order a drink. You know, and um, it got to be where that was my norm. And that was weekdays I was at the bar. If I didn't have money, they would run me a tab. And payday come. The first thing I ever did on payday was go and pay my bar bill. I was one of the very few people that bartenders would let run a tab um, over past <laughs> closing time. But mine would go on for a couple weeks, depending on when I ran out of money. And then I... Start, I had beds at all my friends' houses because, you know, if, you're an, if you drink alone, you're an alcoholic. So I would go to their houses and drink. And I was always one to go to bed. I was the first one to go to bed because I was the first one to get drunk. Um, alcohol, I had a very low tolerance. I've always had a very low tolerance. The first, you know, sip of beer, I could feel it. You know, if I was really thirsty and I guzzled it, I could really feel it. My friends used to make me eat first. And they would make me drink water between um, drinks, just so I could last till 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I always figured 10 o'clock's a good time to go to bed. Because <laughs> it's, it's a work day. But on the weekends, it was, you know, I'd wake up those mornings and want to drink because I felt so shitty 
and um, I felt like I needed it, but I knew if I took a drink, I was an alcoholic. So I, in my mind, I couldn't drink in the morning. So I would go to work so hungover. And I would tell my boss, you know, hey, you know, I didn't call in sick. I'm not like so-and-so who calls in sick all the time with a hangover. I'm here. There's so many times where my boss would say, you need to keep toothpaste and a toothbrush in your desk. Yeah, I, I can smell the alcohol. And I would just lay low and hide from people. And then as soon as I was off work, you know, I had my plan and my friends lined out to head to the bar because I needed that drink. And there's so many times where when I didn't drink, it was planned so that I could say I didn't drink today. But it was on my mind. It was all I could do to get to that next drink. And um, acting normal, you know, what I thought normal was. And not talking about alcohol so people wouldn't know I was craving so bad. And, you know, just like, hey, we're going to have fun today. You know, drinks are on me. Let's go to the bar. Let's, uh, you know, even go dancing afterwards. <laughs> it's always quite the hilarious thing. <laughs> <laughs> being the drunk on the dance floor <laughs> and you know thinking that this is normal but then when the um when my drinking got worse I made sure I always had alcohol at home so that when my friends sent me home at 10 o'clock I would um finish off there and I always had I drank wine at home. I had like displays of wine. <laughs> I, I had wine under the cupboard to refill the display thing. So I would just take the thing, like wine from under the cupboard and drink it. I always drank till I passed out or blacked out. Usually both. But um, it was always, it, w it became a nightly thing. And I always felt like God wanted me to quit drinking. Um... But my Jekyll and Hyde thing wasn't um, anger, and it wasn't mean, or I did do stupid shit, but, you know, my friends kept me accountable for what I did, and the next morning, they would give me a list of what I did and who I need to apologize to, and I would apologize to people, because, you know, this is all people we all hung out with. And then people were, like, so forgiving and understanding, because, oh, you know, that you were just drunk. It's okay. You know, you can't screw up the party people or you're going to drink alone. <laughs> you just accept things about people. And to me, my alcoholism, which I did, back then I didn't realize was alcoholism, was acceptable. I drank too much. I drank daily. That was just acceptable. That's just the way life is. And the people I hung out with were the same way. So my... Jekyll and Hyde thing was more when I'm not drinking, hiding the fact that I was craving, hiding the fact that I was shaky, that I was dehydrated, trying to pretend I'm normal, and not even thinking that when I'm sober is how people are supposed to be and how they're supposed to act. Mine was all an act to 
cover up the fact that I needed that drink. And so my normal was getting to that bar, having those drinks right after work and thinking, now I can finally be normal. And it was so backwards. It wasn't until I came to AA, you know, I, I had to have a traumatic thing happen for me to come. And I had to have a traumatic thing happen for me to decide to never ever drink again. I never ever have another blackout drunk. So I, I was, when I came to AA, I was devastated. And I was of the thought that I will never ever let anybody accuse me of anything in a blackout drunk that I can't remember. Accuse me of something I can't remember because I was blacked out. And so I was, I was there at AA every single day. I was um, listening to people's stories. And when people talked about their relapse, that terrified me. That terrified me that if I ever drink again, I know I will black out. Because AA is where I learned that even when you quit drinking, the disease is progressive. That if you went back out after 20 years, that, that you're, it's still the same progression. You will go right back or worse to where you were. And, um, and I was, that terrified me. So I stuck close to the program. I stuck close to my sponsor. And I was so, you know, getting over the emotions that hurt and the anger and the depression. And my sponsor always told me, that's normal. You don't realize what you're going through is normal because your body is changing. Your mind is changing. You need to, all that pent up emotion that you hid for so many years is coming out and you need to let it out. And she would tell me that um, even before you were an alcoholic, you were hiding your feelings. You were always trying to be normal. So she would tell me, she goes, you need to be honest with yourself and honest with the people around you and feel those feelings because you won't get past them unless you acknowledge them and feel them. So I start, you know, I was, I was known at the crier at the meetings. They're like, oh my gosh, here she goes again. <laughs> I don't know how many times the moment I walked through the door, I was hit with a box of Kleenex. <laughs> it was like, here you go. And me, I was just like, I'm finally in a place where people accept me for who I am. And they see me start to cry and they could make jokes about it. And I could be okay with crying in front of people. You know, and I wasn't one to show. To me, those were weak feelings. I wasn't one to show weak feelings to people. You know, if I was angry, that was okay to show to people. And I didn't realize all that anger was hiding the fears and covering up for how I really felt and trying to pretend I was someone I wasn't because I didn't want people to see the real me. So, and when, I, when people talk about that Jekyll and Hyde, I always think mine was backwards because I felt like when I was drinking, I was normal.
And when I wasn't drinking, I was abnormal. And I was, I wasn't, that wasn't the true me, I felt like. And it was, I didn't discover the true me until I started working my program with a sponsor and started looking at this stuff and started letting myself feel those feelings and let other people see me going through the emotion. And I discovered true friendship, genuine friendship. You know, people reaching out to me and wanting to truly help me. Not people saying, oh, you poor dear, let's go get a drink. It's like, okay, let's go. You know, it wasn't those drinking buddies that I thought were my friends. I found genuine friendship in AA. And my journey since then, I don't feel like I have that Jekyll and Hyde thing so much. I still have it. I still try and hide you know, what I'm going through and how I am and how I feel and try and project happiness all the time so people wouldn't see my character defects. But little by little, I'm learning to be okay with who I am, learning to love myself. And I didn't realize I didn't love myself until I came into the program. So it's, I love the fact that I'm maturing I'm finally maturing in life, and I'm getting to know me. I'm moving here to um, Colorado. It's a big part of it because I have kids and grandkids here that I really feel the need for the the living amends. I've been rambling for a while. Sorry. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> So you mentioned about uh, <clears throat> coming into the meeting, and you'll hear people say that "Let us love you until you love yourself." You know how how do you feel about that, Tony? Have you kind of have you heard that before in the room? Oh, definitely, especially in the beginning. Yeah. Um, I remember the first day I went into a room. Clearly, I was a horrible mess, crying, drunk, um, and um, the first sponsor that I approached. That's what he told me, like, let us love you until you love yourself. And there's a lot of uh, meaning to that, especially in, in my case, because I didn't love myself. I didn't like the person that I was. And I used alcohol to, you know, become the Mr. Hyde. And I kind of agree with Gio that, you know, the Mr. Hyde was kind of my... That's who I wanted people to know, Tony. Um, especially with... Um, you know, relationships with dating women, you know. I was, um, always thought myself of being, like, smooth and, you know, some kind of, like, savant, but when I wasn't drinking or using, I didn't feel like that. I felt like a loser. I felt like, uh, you know, unattract unattractive, you know, just a piece of shit. And, but when I was drinking, I didn't feel like that. And, um... You know, I got to the point where you're always trying to reach that feeling that you're not that Mr. Hyde anymore. You're a drunk Mr. Heck, uh, Jekyll, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's exactly why so many relationships failed. I mean, when I first got in the rooms, that's what I wanted. People kept telling me, you know, well, what the book suggests, you know, if you want what we have 
you know, work this, these steps, these suggestions. But I didn't want what you guys had. I wanted what I wanted. And I was going to get it. And so I was lying to myself in those first seven months of sobriety in 2018 to get what I wanted. And it kind of fell into place, but I was bullshitting myself. I wasn't doing it right. I was doing it all for the wrong reasons. You know, I was going in and out of relationships, in and out, in and out, in and out. And until something, you know, pretty bad happened, that was my first relapse after seven months. And then I didn't come back for almost a year. And again, it was in and out, in and out relationships because I felt that I needed someone, a partner, to be there for me, to love me and my son for who we are. But how the hell can I love somebody or how can somebody love me if I don't love myself? So that's what I take from that. And you said <clears throat> love you for who you are, um, but I don't think you were really showing who you really were. Exactly. And maybe you weren't. You didn't even know, you know, like how do you find who you are? I wanted them to love who I wanted to be, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't, I didn't like who I was unless I was drinking. Do you know you said earlier that you can come into AA and just be yourself and people love you for who you are, right? How's that journey been for you finding your identity and loving who you are? That, you know, I didn't realize I didn't love myself. I didn't realize that I had really low opinion of myself until I sobered up and I start looking at myself and and I look at all the self-destruction in my life all the people I ran out of my life I didn't realize that um, that I didn't have any respect for myself because I was I hid behind I hid it so long that when people said, you know, we'll love you till you learn to love yourself. I didn't realize I didn't love myself. And one of my friends told me, she goes, my sponsor told me to look in the mirror every morning and say, good morning, beautiful. You're going to have a great day. I love you so much. And she told me to try that. And I did it one day and I thought, this is so stupid. I'm not going to do this. This is ridiculous. And I told her that when she asked me if I did it, and she laughed and laughed and laughed. And she said, I said the same thing to my sponsor, but she told me, keep doing it every day. And then one day when I was doing that, I just started bawling. And I was like, God, why am I crying like this? What the fuck is wrong with me? And then I realized, you know, I was letting some of that go. That load I was carrying, I didn't realize it was carrying until it started disappearing. And then I started, one of my um, friends told me to, um, I wish I could, you could see yourself how I see you. I wish you can see yourself through my eyes. You need to start looking at the positive in yourself. And I was trying to think about what is the positive in me? What about me do people like? And the first thing it thought in my head was they like the mask I wear. They like how 
I they like how I they don't really know me but they like the mask I show and when I was talking to um, one of my friends about that she just laughed at me and she said no you silly woman <laughs> that's not it at all she's like you don't realize how much you've grown and how much I can see your growth and I was like I don't see it at all. She's like, from the time you came in to where you are now, I can really see your growth. So I started looking, you know, looking back and trying to see my growth. And then I learned, I had, I realized that all my relationships with men, I sabotaged my entire life, my entire adult life. I sabotaged everything. And, um, I had to learn to find who I am, find the person that I want to be, and project a truth instead of a mask. And and it came with came with that complete honesty, but I had to be completely honest with myself and everyone else. And I I started looking at it because there's one thing about me that I before all my life I didn't like to be called a hypocrite I didn't want but I didn't realize that's what I was until I started looking at myself and so um that whole self-love thing I had to see first that I didn't love myself that I had no respect for myself because I wasn't who I wanted to be wasn't where I wanted to be and I was really super hard on myself. So I had to learn to be kinder and gentler. You know, if one of my friends is going through a hard time, be supportive of them. I had to learn to be that way of myself. And everything I, you know, tried to be there for someone else and be a positive influence in their life. I had to learn to be that for myself and stop being so hard on myself. Stop judging myself. Stop putting myself down. And all those negative thoughts toward myself, I had to acknowledge that's what I was doing and stop. You know, it was a progression of stopping. It was a progression of seeing it and stopping. And even a lot of times when I saw it, um, I would still do it, but with working my program, I learned that I can um, grow progressively. You know, it took a while to recognize it. It took a while to recognize it and do something about it. But it's I'm a work in progress, so little by little, I, I got there. So progress, not perfection. Yes. I think for me, I one of the things that prevented me from coming to like AA and finally getting sober was the fear of failing and then feeling like a hypocrite. And it was one of the important um, things that I remain anonymous. Like nobody can know that I'm trying to get sober, you know, because I was afraid of the failure. Um mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a, a family that really likes to talk, you know, and I'm because I hear it, you know, and I don't want to be one of the topics ever. Um, I think once I finally 
came to the realization that I don't have to do this perfect, that I just have to try. It opened up a door of opportunity of, of like just my spirituality just like blew up. Um, I got to, you know, I, I started coming into AA. I went in and out a lot, but you guys told me to keep coming back. Progress, not perfection. And um, it took me a while. But it was also one of the things that allowed me to talk to God again because I never wanted to because I was like, I'm not ready because I'm not perfect. Um, the same way I thought that I wouldn't come to AA until I was sober. You know, <laughs> it was like backwards. I didn't know that I had to come with my imperfections and all to make progress, you know, spiritually and in my sober, in my sobriety, you know, I had to come broke to be fixed. I wasn't going to be fixed and then show up. Um, Tony, what do you think about progress, not perfection? Um, have Has that helped you at all? Like, have you've heard that a few times? Yeah, right? for sure. I mean, we hear it every day in meetings. Um, it took me three years and silver relapses to where I am now. I mean, I, I barely have maybe two and two months and some weeks of not drinking. But just from the experience and actually having, you know, that spiritual contact with my God of my understanding, it's different. I feel different. I pray differently. I don't know how to explain it. It's just this last time is just different. It feels different. And then what happened with the sedatives, I honestly say I was not playing that at all. Just like drinking with my first relapse. I was like, yeah, I control it. But no, I went into this like manic state where I finished the whole entire goddamn bottle of pills. And that wasn't my intention at all. And I don't remember shit about it. And that's horrifying. Hmm. So it was definitely, you know, I'm still in progress. I'm nowhere near perfect. But it's been a progress ever since 2018 mm -hmm. to where I am now. What's keeping you um, like trying you know, a lot of people don't make it this far. No, they'd be dead. You know, they'd be dead or they'd be out. In jail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if they're locked up or covered up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you've been blessed with opportunity after opportunity to come back. And you know, like I know, that those opportunities don't last forever. Right. You know, we've seen a few lives just over the year not come back, you know, to this disease it's it's pretty scary stuff um but you are making progress you mm -hmm. know you you remind me a lot of my recovery because i was in and out and in and out but eventually i just i got tired and i decided to just stay because it was more tiring not to stay and i was tired i mean yeah i mean I was sick and tired of being insane because I would keep doing the same shit all the time and it would come to the point where, you know, so much alcohol would be coming into my body that, I mean, I don't even know, like, I don't know what I was expecting, you know, but in retrospect, I was kind of expecting myself just to end for everything just to end. Especially this last summer, I mean, the summer, I barely remember. It went by so quick. 
And I was always sick all the time. And now that I'm not sick, I mean, I'm probably still sick, you know, but I feel good. I feel well. And it took all of those hospitalizations, all the, all the heartache, everything, all the, you know, how Gino said shit hits the fan, you know. My fans, you know, shit hit the fan for me, got all over myself, and then a fucking pigeon went through the fan. They got, you know, feathered with shit. And then I fell backwards into a hole, if that makes any sense. Things went bad. That's a visual, man. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if you can imagine that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But today, you guys are uh, more open to service work. In the town that we live in, you know, we don't get like 24-hour service work, 24-7 anyways. So it's pretty cool that you guys stepped up today to uh, do some night watch anyways and to get into some service work. Um, When it comes to getting involved in AA, uh, when did that kind of, uh, when did you guys come to that decision that you wanted to be involved in AA and what benefits do you see from kind of being more involved? Because I used to keep everybody at an arm's length and like leave. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to do what these guys are doing because they're crazy or whatever. And then eventually when I wasn't getting it, I decided to finally take suggestions, get in the deep end and stay busy. Um, And that took me a long way early on. So why don't you guys talk about that? For me, um, I was when I first came into the program, um, my son brought me the first time, and then after that, I just went automatically, daily. And the second day I was there, somebody pulled me aside and said, tell me your story. And I did. And he said, you know, you need a sponsor. Tomorrow I will make sure there are plenty of women here. You listen to their stories. You pick a sponsor. And I was like so um, devastated, you know, um, depressed. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And the next day I went there and that room was filled with women. (laughs) And I heard women um, talking and saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so called me and told me I have to be at the meeting today. And everyone's like, me too. You know, why do you do that? I was like, I don't know. And someone said, someone needs a sponsor. So I don't know. And so I knew it was all about me, but I listened. And I listened to, and all he called, he was leading the meeting. And all he called on was women. And every woman who shared, he would look at me and nod. And then he would call on another one. At the end of the meeting, he's like, which story did you identify with? Who do you want as your sponsor? I want you to pick one today. And I said, her. And he said, come on over, I'll introduce you. Nice. <laughs> and so when I told, shared my story with her, she, she said, um, you know, we live day by day, 24 hours a day. We don't future trip, we don't, but you need to get involved. And I started working with her every day I cried to her every day, (laughs) and then um, she said, I want you to start making coffee. Here's the code to get into the church, 
and here's all the supplies. I want you to be here at least, at the very least, a half hour early and have everything set up. And so I started doing that. And then little by little, you know, I started feeling better. It was, it was a sense of accomplishment, I think, that I did something good. And um, I told her I liked doing that. So she started finding me other things to do. And I liked doing that. And then, you know, after that um, first year, and then I was feeling more um, at peace in myself. You know, I was still on quite the journey, but she had me like go to the AA picnic and, uh, you know, that the inner group sponsored, and they were talking about the volunteers they needed there. Now that was six months, that's right. I sobered up in January, this was in June or July. But anyway, I said, you know, I want to volunteer. They, but they say you need a minimum of a year sobriety to volunteer. So I just told the people at Intergroup, well, I'll be back when I have a year. And he's like, hold on, hold on. We'll make an exception. <laughs> <laughs> so I started volunteering at the office, answering phones and selling things. And then it's like every time I turn around, there was an opportunity to help someone and different volunteer positions. So because I was totally unemployed and unemployable, I immersed myself in helping others. And that was... I think that helped me a lot with my um, self-esteem, being of help, being of service to others. So I, I started going on 12-step meetings in hospitals with friends. And it's like, hey, we know someone in a hospital. They need a meeting. Um, people that were stuck at home. And I felt good doing that. I felt like I was being of service. And it... It made me feel better hearing people's story, more one-on-one -on -one type, and looking at their progress. And, and I was always comparing other people's progress to mine. But I wanted to see my growth because everybody was talking about, you know, how they saw my growth, and I didn't. So I wanted to see that. And hearing other people, you know, down the road, I could look back and say, gosh, I remember when I went through that. I remember how I felt like that. I remember crying about that. I remember being angry about that. And then I would think to myself, I did grow. I have progressed. Like, yay me. You know, this is all in my head all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was seeing my progress. So I think being of service, doing service work, helped me so much um, to get out of myself, to realize there are people out there who are just starting, and I've passed that point, and I can help them get through that point. And I, I really liked it, except for the sponsorship part. I started sponsoring people, and everybody I sponsored went back out, and I took it so personally. <laughs> mm. 
Well, you stayed sober, though, right? I stayed sober. Good. Tony, um, we've been, like, a couple of weeks ago or so, we were at the Corrections Conference. Mm-hmm. So we got a chance to do some service work there. And then um, we'll be taking, well, hopefully, pretty soon we'll be, you know, doing meetings in jails and whatever. Um, that should be cool. But um, how do you think that service work has become important to you? And um, what do you hope to get out of it? Well, it keeps me intrigued in the program, for sure. Um, I think, you know, that uh, Corrections Conference really um, interested me, you know, doing that kind of service work, you know, instead of, you know, pouring coffee or, you know, helping clean up, which I still like to do. But doing something bigger than that, um, you know. Um, um, these people that are incarcerated, they need help as well as we did. The only difference between us is they got caught, which, you know, by the grace of God, I was never caught like that. <laughs> uh, knocking on wood. Um, but yeah, it really intrigued me to do that kind of service work, to talk to people. Um, especially, you know, you know, I'm not having that much sober time, but actually being around the program for the last three years. You know, I'm, I want to be part of the program. I want to help other people. And it's rewarding. And I believe, you know, it will help. It helps me stay, you know, in my lane, you know, being sober. It would definitely help me in the long run and in the, sh- in the short time, too. Um, you know, saying something about hospitals and that's something that, you know, huh, we should, you know. no. When I was hospitalized, no one came in and talked to me about AA. The nurses even didn't say, you know, you need to go AA or you're going to die. They would ask me, you know, what would you do? What What's your plan when you get out of here to, you know, stay sober? And I would tell them AA. And they wouldn't give me any pamphlets or anything. It was me telling them that that's what I was doing. Even my uh, my regular doctor, he never recommended AA to me. I would tell him about AA. So um, maybe there's that gray area where professionals don't have that kind of resource or, you know, the lack of volunteers, like we found out in the corrections uh, conference. There's not enough people volunteering to get that message out. Which, you know, isn't that 12, uh, step 12? Carry the message out to other alcoholics in need. So, I mean, the way I kind of think about it, it's kind of like a branching out. You know, you first come into the room to get a sponsor. That's Your sponsor has a sponsor, and that sponsor has a sponsor. Then you eventually go out and have sponsees and then you know hopefully by the grace of god they stay sober and then they have sponsees it just branches out this giant oak tree kind of deal kind of like a spirit uh pyramid scheme but you're not getting screwed over you know <laughs> yeah it's the opposite yeah it's just branching out it's exponential yeah it's, it's pretty awesome so through the cracks of your experience you were able to see opportunities for growth and helping others, you know, even though it was a mess, right? Right. But look at the benefit that you got from it. Like you, you got to see the different areas where you didn't get help, but maybe now you can go and plug those holes and help and be of service. It's kind of neat. Yeah, that reminds me of a time where we had um, my home group, 
um, ha this was an open meeting and we had a lady who wasn't alcoholic there. She was a nurse. And when that day was a pretty small group, but at the end, you know, I was leading the meeting and I asked her if she would like to share and she started crying and she said, I'm an ER nurse and I wanted to see if everything we do for the alcoholic who comes to the ER was worth it. Hmm. She said, all we see is the ugly side. All we see is the, the drunk who we help detox and send him back out there. And she said, I've been getting really, um, she was getting really like discouraged. Yeah, with her job and helping alcoholics. And someone suggested that she go to an AA meeting. Hmm. And so she was there and she was crying. And she said, I am so thankful that God guided me here so I can see, you know, the people I help who say they're going to AA. Um, she said, I, I know my job was worth it now. I know God meant for me to come here and meet you guys so I can see I am being of help to people. And my job is worth it. And I will definitely plug AA more often and treat people like human beings and know that they have a disease and know it's curable. She said, and she started coming like every couple of weeks or so. And she said, you know, I just needed to come back and listen to you guys. And I thought that was so awesome. And the group I was with, we went out to dinner every Friday. And so we invited her to go to dinner with us. And she said, I haven't had this many belly laughs in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but she's like, I'm so glad. And she became friends with a lot of the people there. It was always questioning about our alcoholism. And she, she would just say, you know, I want to help people who come into the ER. And I'm going to suggest to the other nurses they go to an AA meeting. She's like, hopefully the, the town I come from, it was a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings, you know, from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., like almost every hour there's a meeting somewhere. So she was going to encourage more nurses to get to meetings. And I think that is a good thing. And that's, you know, Tony had a really good idea. Maybe you should drop off some pamphlets, you know, sure, sure. and talk to people. Because I think it's a great thing when people who are not, alcoholics see it as a disease not just a low grade of people type thing like a lot of people do look at it because they they think it's just a choice and we just make bad choices hmm. so i i like that i'm glad you brought that up Tony. you brought back that memory yeah so speaking of that um there's a behavioral center right across the tuesday meeting and i don't think they know that there's a meeting right there at the church I'm sure, you know, a lot of their clients are alcoholics or some kind of abuse or something. I would imagine. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I mean, little things like that mm -hmm. would be pretty easy to do. Yeah. Um, we just I, need more people. Well, we just need some more pamphlets 
and then we can just drop them. I think in the, the Friday meeting, we've had um, certain people like assigned a place to have pamphlets. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if that area was ever talked about, or that place, I should I say. I don't think they know it's there. I think it's pretty think new, right. actually. Well, you can jump in now and be like, I got this place. Yeah. I know them. Just throw a bunch of pamphlets <laughs> and leave. In Espanol. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was a great little meeting. Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. Thank you. For Thank sharing. you for inviting us. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. And, um, yeah, we still haven't got a phone call, but I don't know. We got like... Eight and a mm, half hours. Eight and a half hours left. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah. Time for pizza. Yes, I agree. And thank you listeners for checking us out again. Remember, you can find more of our episodes on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to uh, check out your podcasts. Share us with a friend and we'll see you next time. <laughs>